The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Command this stone. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The temptation of Jesus is perhaps one of the strangest stories in the New Testament. If it were not assigned for us to be read on this first Sunday of Lent every year, I'm not sure how often it would get visited. We might want to ignore it. If we look to Christ as our sole help and guide, it is a profoundly hopeful text, of course, for he never wavers, and against our greatest adversary, he leaves the wilderness victorious. But there are decidedly unusual elements about the story, and, and some somewhat terrifying application as well. For example, Jesus is in the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit, and yet Luke says that he is led by the Spirit, apparently to this or for this appointment. The God of heaven must have known that his greatest adversary, this fallen angel who defied him, would sense what God was doing in Christ and would want to destroy him. Indeed, one imagines that the devil, though he does not possess all knowledge, was aware of the prophecies that pointed to the Messiah, the birth of Christ, and perhaps had watched him grow as a boy, waiting for him to do something that would reveal his full nature. Now that Jesus has been publicly baptized by John the Baptist, and proclaimed to be by John the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world, this meeting seems inevitable. Kind of has the feel of a heavyweight boxing match 
Two champions who have been observing one another in the papers for a while, knowing that the ultimate test would come when they met one another. And then the day comes. But we can only imagine what this encounter with this demonic being would have been like. Did the devil just sort of show up these three times? Or was he a constant companion of Jesus during these 40 days? We're not really told. Did the devil really own all the kingdoms of the land? That is, like, he's showing Jesus all the kingdoms and says, hey, I can give these to you if I want. Are they really his? And how in the world did Jesus survive eating nothing for 40 full days? I know of no Lenten fast that severe. Some will say that this is really just an archetypal story of good versus evil. You know, that every good story needs to set the stage for an ultimate victory. Some will say that these three temptations uh, merely represent the basic needs of life. You know, food, shelter and government, order, uh, safety, Some will say there's no good reason to even believe that this really happened. The idea of it alone suffices to teach us that sacrifice is important and temptation can be defeated. I think it did happen, though, though I would suspect that the devil's engagement with Jesus was far more complex than we could ever understand. It's kind of a third heaven situation where uh, an, a kind of dimension of reality is, is coming down to earth and we, we wouldn't want to be anywhere near that. It seems likely that far more than six sentences between these, uh, these two warriors would have been spoken. With every word, the devil looking for an opportunity, looking for an angle of attack to breach the defenses of Jesus. The devil is cunning and perceptive, after all. It wasn't his ability to scheme that was his downfall, though. Of course, it was his lack of trust in God, and therefore his inability to understand where Christ drew his power and strength. But in spite of the strangeness of the story, it is incredibly relevant Let's be honest, we are not in the habit of denying ourselves much of anything. And in living in such a way, we become weak. We forget what it takes to succeed. And I don't mean to succeed in business per se, but really to successfully hold off temptations in our own lives. The Christian call of self-denial is perhaps paradoxically really a call of self-empowerment. It's about the only time I'm going to use that phrase, self-empowerment. It's a little too new aging and motivational speech for me. But in self-denial, we do find self-empowerment. For so long as we are dependent on food or shelter or government to provide joy or meaning for us, we will always be their slaves. The discipline of self-denial is a reminder 
in Lent is a small reminder that in Christ we have all that we need. It's a testament to the virtues of fortitude and perseverance. Over and over, Paul calls on the Christians, for example, to persevere. In Romans or Philippians 3, he writes, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In forgetting these virtues, we individually, or our culture at large, have simply lost discipline. We've lost our way. On morality, there are really few lines to speak of anymore. Pretty much anything goes. If it makes you happy, right? If it feels good to you, do it. These are the culture's guiding lights. These are the limits of morality. Financially, we have become a debtor nation, not only as persons, but as a nation. We do not have a neglect of food, although we may have some scarcity of it soon, but rather we have an overindulgence, even those of us who can hide it a little better than others. Virtually everywhere you turn, we have refused to live disciplined lives. And there will be a price to pay. There always is. Many economists are predicting that our financial irresponsibility will soon bear fearful fruit. Our nation is now already forced with the decision of uh, inflation or recession. Maybe both at the same time. The laws of economics are fixed, so something has to give. And this must be said by those who dare to comment on our moral failings. People like me, right? pastors who talk about various moral issues. We need to talk about this too, because it is immoral for our nation to refuse to live within its means. It has led to the worst tax on the poor, inflation. And it is destabilizing the world. What we're seeing in Ukraine, I fear, I hope I'm wrong always, I usually hope I'm wrong, but I fear it's the beginning of more destabilization as currencies are destabilized, as the foundations that support a culture and nation are destabilized, it does lead to conflict. It is very real. And you see, that's the thing about discipline. You either embrace it and you bear the fruit that comes with the virtues of modesty and thrift and patience and charity, or we can ignore it and be disciplined by the heavy hand of the law. I don't just mean the civic codes, I mean the laws of nature. Every Christian politician in this nation should have been preaching the immorality of deficit spending, delaying the pain of such debt indefinitely. But we have taken the route of easy money, and the costs will be steep in the months and years 
to come. Now, I hope you can forgive that indulgence of mine, but we preachers so often just focus on sort of outward moral failings of ourselves and our societies that we sort of let things like, you know, economic policy slide. But when civilization itself totters and falls because an economy is destroyed, that should not be and will not be ignored by anyone. So maybe this Lent is as good a time as any to really evaluate our appetites. Do we really believe and live as though we have enough? What would it look like to tighten our belt to change our habits? Can we model good stewardship for the world, and can we call on our leaders to be courageous in setting limits? Is it time to seriously set aside extra money for a rainy day, to lessen or eliminate debt, or to change the habits that drain us? One thing I know for sure The church must and will survive a turbulent future. And it must because the church is the only institution institution in the world that creates peace, honors life, promotes sanity, and can heal a broken world. Especially in this incredible age of abundance, I know we find it hard to deny ourselves. Why should we? Our entire economy is now presupposed on future benefit, or future pain, rather, but present benefit. But how we live reveals how we trust in God. We often fail in this pursuit of radical faith in God. That's why we have lived to remind ourselves of that reality. But when we fail, we remember Jesus' strength, resolve, and faith in God's goodness when he was tempted for those 40 days. We remember his going toe-to-toe, mano-a-mano, with the devil himself, and winning. He won for you. Let us take up the cause and show the world that we have enough in God. Amen.